Today, I got a message for you, um, and it's called Open Invite. Everyone say Open Invite. I don't know if you love weddings. I know most people do and some don't, but I love weddings. I think it's just such a cool moment where we're celebrating love. Everyone's dressed up a little bit fancy and there's delicious food. And the ones that we love are saying yes to forever. Congratulations, Graham and Patricia on getting engaged. That is awesome. However, there's one thing about weddings that's always a little bit awkward, and I think there's not a whole lot of ways to avoid it if you're running your wedding in a particular way. It's when you have a different ceremony from a reception, and you don't have enough space for everyone who came to the ceremony to also join you for a meal at the reception. See, Darcy and I, we got married at our Botany campus just over six years ago, and everyone was invited. It was like an open invite. It's a big auditorium. If you wanted to come and celebrate, we had space for you. It was the greatest day of Darcy's life. (laughs) The problem was we had a whole bunch of people come to the ceremony to celebrate us saying our I do's, but our reception venue at a winery up in Walkworth only had 63 spaces. And so we had to send out two different types of invitation. You might be familiar with this. One of the invitations invited people, hey, want to come celebrate with us? You can totally come celebrate. We would love that if you want to support us. And then a separate invitation was inviting a select group of people to come and join us for a meal and some dancing and some cake at the reception. Now, it was a really hard decision to make. It was incredibly difficult, but we had to do it. And I'm not sure if you've ever received a wedding invitation, but there's always that little looky look. Like, just to find out, like, was I invited to the reception? Because you just don't know. And so you're looking through, like, did I make the cut? Am I part of the in crew? Do I get to go to the reception or is it just the ceremony for me? See, for us, the, the ceremony was for everyone, but the reception couldn't be. And I love the part about weddings when it comes to this where people make it real awkward because at the event, no one wants to talk about it, right? Because you know some weren't invited to the reception and some weren't. And so you find yourself in a conversation. You're like, hey, so what are you, you know, up to after? I mean, did you get, are you coming? How was your day? <laughs> you realize halfway through the sentence, I've gone too far. I've asked them and, and I know I'm invited, but I'm not sure if they are. And now I've exposed it and it gets really awkward. People love to be invited. You know that, I know that. We love to be included in things. We love to be noticed. We love to be seen. We like to think that our presence matters and that we're valued. You know, as we celebrate Easter this year, it's one of the few moments in our society where we have a few extra eyes and a little bit more attention on the church and the story of Jesus than usual. Now, pretty much everyone in our society has heard of Jesus. Some people just use his name as a swear word. But one thing cannot be denied. The name of Jesus means something. The story of the death and resurrection of Jesus brings millions of people across the planet. Life, peace, hope, vision, and healing. And yet for others, they would say it feels a bit divisive. It can feel violent when I think of Jesus on the cross. It it seems far-fetched. For many people, they would say it feels exclusive. I remember in 2012, it was January, and I was down in Whanganui because my dad had had an unexpected heart attack that he died from a few days later. Now, we were all down there as a family to take care of that and be next to him as he went through his final moments. And I remember we were staying at my dad's house, and all the family had come together, and we had quite a disconnected family, so that was a whale of a time. But there we were, and I remember waking up one morning, and my older brother walked into the room. And my older brother had barely been in church his whole life. 
he'd heard the word of Jesus, but he didn't know much about him. And he was trying to figure out life on his own, trying to journey this whole grieving process by himself, feeling very lonely. And to be honest, he was struggling. I remember having a brief conversation with him about how even though it was undeniably a bad situation, I was carrying hope. I was carrying peace because of my relationship with God and the support I was getting from my church family. And I remember like it's in those moments, sometimes you just feel a little extra bold. And I remember being there sitting on the bed and my brother walked in and I just said, you need to get to church. I just came out with it. And he said, no, 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 no. Church isn't for people like me. And you know that. And I remember being so shocked so stunned at how misled my older brother had been. I didn't even know what to say. I remember sitting there on the bed shocked. I remember thinking in my mind and in my heart, are you kidding me? The love of God and the message of Jesus is for someone exactly like you. He had believed the lie that God was looking for upright, shiny, sparkly people. He believed the lie that the message of Jesus was for good people. He believed the lie that the message of Jesus wasn't for him. It's crazy because he had exactly the same access as I had to love, to forgiveness, to graciousness, to to forgive. I said forgiveness to to this relationship with God. He had the same access that I had, except he didn't think he'd been invited to the reception. But I love the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter ten, verse thirteen. It says, "Everyone that doesn't exclude a single person, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved." What an amazing promise for you and I today. Despite where we've gone, what we've done, how much we've messed up, despite how far we think we are from God, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. You know, years ago before international flight uh, was common, uh, a man wanted to get himself from Europe to the United States. And so he started saving all of his money, every penny he could, he gathered in every dollar to eventually have just enough to buy a ticket for a cruise ship to get him from Europe to the United States. Now, back in those days, the trip took about three weeks to make the journey, but he saved up just enough for the trip. It was really a stretch for him financially. So what the man did is he went and bought a little suitcase and he packed it with cheese and crackers because he knew he had to survive to get to the other end. And he made his way onto the boat. And after a few days of settling in, he noticed all the other guests making their way into the big, fancy, ornate, fancy, fancy dining room, enjoying all of these delicious meals. But there he was in the corner eating his cheese and crackers. This happened day in and day out. He could smell the beautiful food wafting through. He heard all the murmurs about how delicious it was, how succulent the meat was, how fresh the vegetables were. All the other guests saying, I'm gonna have to go on a diet after this. I'm just so full of good food. And he would lie awake at night dreaming of the day that one day he could also eat the fancy pantsy meals like all the other guests. The story goes that near the end of his three-week trip, there he was again, as he did every day, in the corner with his suitcase, eating his cheese and crackers. And another passenger, a man came over and said, excuse me, sir, I've noticed you here eating the cheese and crackers. Why don't you come and join us in the dining hall and eat one of the delicious meals? Well, rather flushed and feeling quite embarrassed, he had to admit, thank you for the offer, but I could only just afford the ticket for the boat. I don't have any extra money to afford the fancy meals. Well, the jaw dropped on the other passenger. His eyebrows lifted. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He says, do you not realize, sir, that the price of the food was covered in your ticket? Like the food was already paid for. Can you imagine that? I'll be so gutted. Like I'd, I'd rage quit. I don't know what I would do. Like, <laughs> It's amazing because all of the food was offered to everybody. 
Everyone on the ship had access to the same provision. There were rich people and poor people on the boat. There were smart people and not so smart people on the boat. There were famous people and ordinary people, and yet the same cruise experience was offered to everybody. I need to remind you today that the promises of God are available to you. It doesn't matter how far you feel, how distant you think you've got in yourself, how dirty you think you are, the promises of God are for you. And the greatest news is that by Jesus going to a cross, giving of his life and giving it all, he paid the price. So it's paid for in full. That means your freedom, it's already paid for. Your healing, it's already paid for. Your forgiveness is already paid for. I realize that every single week we have people come into church that are new and we love that. And I want to just jump into a couple of stories about Jesus because Easter is all about Jesus. And we want to get a little glimpse into his heart, into his nature. Maybe you haven't heard much of him. I'd love to jump into some stories to show you what God's heart is towards his people. First one is in Luke chapter 5. It says this and it should be on the screen. We also have an Elam app where you can follow through on the notes there as well. It says later, As Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, I love this. He's like, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. He's like, do you, are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you smelling what I'm cooking? Are you catching what I'm throwing out? Do you realize what's going on? He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. If you think so, you've missed the point. It's actually sick people that need a doctor. And then he said this, I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but to anyone who realizes they're a sinner and needs to repent. If I could paraphrase, I imagine Jesus would be like, why do, I, why do I eat and drink with scum? Man, you guys are no better, but at least they admit it. You're no better than these guys, but at least they acknowledge their need for me in their life. You're no better than these guys, but at least they have their hearts open to including me in their world. This is not an exclusive club, but because you think you've got it all sorted out and you're just God's gift to this green earth, you are the one that has excluded yourself. I could imagine Jesus thinking and possibly even saying to these Pharisees, Oh, you thought, right, you thought I, you thought I came for people like you. You thought I just came for the righteous. I get it. You're amazing. You thought I just came for the sparkly clean, got it all together people. But actually, he's like, I just came for anyone who would turn their hearts towards me, who would open their hearts, acknowledge their sin and say, God, I need your help in this journey. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8 says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. He's saying, I come for anyone who relates to that. If you've got it all sorted and you're amazing and you're God's gift to green, then, then you do you. But if anyone else is here in that boat, then I've come with a rescue plan. I need to remind you that Easter is for everyone. It's interesting though, because if Easter is for everyone, it kind of doesn't make sense here in a moment because Jesus says, I have come to call not those who think they're righteous. Hold on, I, I thought Easter was for everyone. Apparently not. There's a requirement. 
there's a prerequisite. The power of Easter and the story of Jesus is only powerful towards a certain heart condition. In fact, Jesus is very clear that there are a group of people that he did not come for. Those who drink Earl Grey tea. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. There's just less rewards in heaven. <laughs> it's a fine tea if you don't know anything about tea. <laughs> anyway, he's made it clear there is a group of people that I did not come for. It's those that think they've got it all sorted. Those that think they've mastered every area of life. Now, he doesn't stop loving those people, but because of their pride, it's like the door has been shut on him. Sometimes our pride can do that. We shut the door on Jesus and what he wants to do in our life. You know, the other day, the, uh, G- Darcy, I was going to say Jesus was in our lounge. Sure, he was. Darcy was in our lounge, which is not as surprising. And... Um, she was just reading a book. It was the early evening, and I was down the other end of the house. I don't know what I was doing, wasting time. She was an intellectual. And she's reading this book, making the most of her time over a couple of hours. And over that time, it went from light to dark outside. Now, I remember walking down the hallway, walking in, thinking, like, where's Darcy? This is a dark room. And I see her trying to read her book in a dark room. And so I flicked the lights on. It was like, like new life entered the room. I'm like, you're weird. Why are you reading a book in the dark? She had no idea. Because she started reading when it was light and things had gotten dark and she didn't realize that it had happened. She didn't realize it was dark until she saw the light. She didn't notice. She didn't realize. She thought everything was fine until her eyes were open to the fact that it wasn't. And I think sometimes we can approach life a little like this. We become so used to our brokenness, so used to our pain, so used to the turmoil around us that we begin to think it's normal. We begin to think that we can do life by ourselves, And it's only when a light is shone on it and we find freedom out of that place that we realize how bad it was. But this is what the victory on the cross does. It brings light into darkness. It brings hope where we felt defeated. It brings peace where we felt like we were in turmoil. It brings clarity where we were once blurry. It brings freedom where you were once bound and shackled. I've got one more story for you, and I want to park here for a few extra minutes. It's in John chapter 8, another great story of Jesus, from verse 1 to verse 11. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, we've heard about those guys, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, like being unfaithful to her partner. They put her in front of the crowd and said, Teacher, uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And can we remind you while we're here that the law of Moses says that because of that, she should be stoned. They're essentially saying, Hey, Jesus, society tells us that people's mistakes should disqualify them. But what do you think? They were trying to trap him. The verse continues. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So he's like, okay, you're right. I'm not going to turn my back on the law. That, that wouldn't be right. The law should be upheld, but only perfect people can deliver the judgment. Only the righteous can cast the first stone. And then he stooped down again in the dust to continue writing. I don't know what he was doing. He must have been so close to finishing his Sudoku puzzle, but he, he wanted to get back. When the accusers heard this, that command that only the righteous could stay and throw the first stone, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. 
It's interesting because Jesus remained because he wasn't required to leave like the others. Jesus remained because he didn't fit into the same box as those men did. In fact, he was the only perfect person who could have thrown the first stone. He was the only perfect person present, and so he stuck around. And then Jesus said to the woman as she lay there, he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? I've noticed that all of your accusers have left. Did they all have something in common? Did they all come to the same conclusion when I said only the righteous could stick around? Did they all come to the same conclusion and leave? Did not one of them have the right to stay? And she says, no, Lord, they're not here. They've gone. They're not here to condemn me. And then Jesus said, well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, I love this story because it's a powerful display of two very different types of people experiencing the nature of God. You've got these religious leaders who thought they were all righteous, walking around pompous and proud. And then you've got this woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. She is embarrassed. She is filled with shame and guilt and was brought before Jesus as one of the worst. And I think movies, media, people that probably haven't represented God too well have sold us the lie where if we were reading the story, we would jump to the conclusion maybe that we think we know what might happen. Oh, I know what's going to happen here. Jesus is just going to team up with that crew of righteous men and give that woman what she deserves. Like God just can't wait to punish mistakes and he's got a special relationship with those that follow the rules. Maybe we've been sold that lie. But these Pharisees, they weren't on Jesus' side. In fact, they didn't even recognize God when he was standing right in front of them. These religious leaders thought they had trapped Jesus. They were like, man, this Jesus, he's always trying to let people off the hook. He's always trying to be gracious. But if he turns his back on the law of Moses, ooh, we got him. Like that is grounds and always to punish this guy. So what we'll do, we're so cunning. We're going to bring someone so guilty that they were literally caught in the act. And we're going to say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act. And then we'll remind Jesus that the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. And so if he turns his back on the law of Moses, oh, we got him. Like if he turns his back on the law of Moses and denies it, he is toast. But Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows the law. In fact, Jesus is very aware of what the law says, and he knows that sin must be punished unless it's forgiven. And forgiveness can only come with repentance, to turn from our ways towards God's ways. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dust, but most scholars believe it was most likely to be Scripture, something that Jesus had become very familiar with. So it's interesting, as Jesus stoops back down to ride in the dust, perhaps he's writing scripture and it's like a reminder. It's like a steadying. It's like a, an instruction as he sits there and he ponders God's word, he ponders God's truth, and then he uses that to stand back up and inform his very next decision. See, God's grace, what it did is it allowed the woman to walk free, but it also allowed the Pharisee, the, the proud, pompous, person. It also allowed him to excuse himself without the shame of owning up to his shortcomings publicly. Jesus didn't say, oh, you guys can't talk. Like, I know you're trying to get me to condemn her, but like you're sinners as well. And he didn't say this in front of everyone. He didn't say, you need to not worry about the speck in her eye because there's actually a log in yours. And said, he said, that's fine. I acknowledge the law. You're right. Let's uphold this. But if you've sinned, then you need to leave. And so he gave them this gracious opportunity to come to that conclusion themselves, to realize that they were sinners and one by one turn away and walk away from that confrontation. 
Jesus didn't turn his back on the law. In fact, he affirms it. He says, I agree, the law does say that, but I'm going to be the one to set the criteria on who gets to do the judging. I'm going to appoint the judge, and da, 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 it's me. <laughs> and by me, Jesus, it's him, not me. The religious leaders realize that we're sinners, and God's grace allows them to walk away from their judgmental mistake. So in one stroke of genius, you have both of them receiving grace and both of them being challenged on their sin. See, if the Pharisees had just publicly disregarded Jesus' statement, they would be publicly acknowledging that they were sinners in a very overt way, and that's not what they were going to do. They didn't want to subscribe to Jesus' instructions, and so they get given this gracious opportunity to acknowledge it in their own heart, to turn and to walk away. They both receive grace, but they're both challenged on their sin, a prompt to turn from their old way of life towards a brand new way. Come on, how good is it that God's grace is for the weak and the strong? It's for the upright and it's for the lowly. God's grace is for every person who would ready their heart to receive it. Easter, Easter is for your neighbor. Easter is for your spouse. Easter is for your parents. Easter is for that person that you cannot stand. And Easter is for you. LJ, you could join me on keys. That would be awesome. You know, one of the most accurate, historically supported accounts that we have as humankind is the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There is more evidence, more documented eyewitness accounts. There is more scholarly reviewed findings on this moment in time than anything else you hold to be true from before your lifetime. Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a sinless life, who devoted himself to loving people, knew exactly what it meant to be a man while simultaneously carrying with him the authority of heaven. He goes to a cross as everything in scripture for thousands of years before him had foretold, predicted and foreshadowed and there he was. Once again, I imagine you've got the Pharisees looking on going, ha ha, we've got him this time, checkmate. But right before his last breath, Jesus mutters these words. He says, it is finished. Meaning the price had been paid. The sacrifice that needed to be offered in our place was given. His mission to come and seek and save the lost was finally complete. And with one final stroke of the pen, He gives access not to those who thought they were righteous, but to anybody who realized they were sinners and needed to repent. I think this is all of us today. This is definitely me. It's you. It's everybody in the room. I love Romans 3.23. It says, For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means we miss the mark. We don't measure up to perfection, which is required for heaven. So we say, well, how do we get, I, I don't measure up. We're all in the same boat. That's not to condemn you because there's great news. Easter is for the Pharisee and for the woman caught in adultery. Easter is for the wealthy and the poor. Easter is for every single person. But also Easter is because of every person. It's my sin that placed Him there on that cross. It's your sin that placed Him there on that cross. But He took it upon Himself. He endured that judgment in our place so that you and I could know full, everlasting, overflowing life. And He did this out of an indescribable love for you like the man on the cruise ship. Full access has been given to everybody. 
But if you hide by yourself, if you go to the corner, if you eat the cheese and crackers and try to do it in your own strength, you will miss out on the life that has already been paid for. God's free gift of salvation gives you forgiveness for your past. It gives you access to a relationship with a God who made you and loves you. And it comes with it the promise of an eternity in heaven. Bible says that anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. But to do that, you've got to repent. The word is metanoa. It means to turn 180 degrees. It means to change your direction. It means to turn from a life of sin towards a life of godly principle and purpose. It's a free gift that we can't earn. We'll never deserve it. There's no way we can reach it. And yet today He extends it to us. It's His free gift. Like He did with the woman that was brought before Him. If you would turn your heart towards Jesus, if you would acknowledge your sin, then to you He would also say, you were forgiven. Now go and sin no more. You know, Jesus is crucified on the cross. The earth grows dark. There's an earthquake. And it seems like this is it. This is the end of the story. But three days later, when some woman come rushing to the grave with some spices to treat his dead body, they run inside and the stone is rolled away and Jesus is not there. There's an angel and the angel says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here for he has risen. Jesus rose on the third day, defeating the power of sin and death in our life. He conquered the grave and Jesus welcomes every single one of us into that life of victory. The resurrection gives us victory over sin, victory over condemnation and guilt, victory over the schemes of the devil, victory over darkness as we are transferred into the kingdom of light. And even in His final moments as He hung on a cross, just if you weren't quite convinced, there's a criminal hanging either side of Him and one of them turns his heart towards Jesus. And Jesus says to that criminal, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Easter is for everyone and Easter is for you. I'm so glad that you're here. I know God rejoices that you've come and gathered into His house to hear this very message. And I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. And this is a prayer that I wanna invite you to pray for yourself. If you know that Jesus is not the center of your life, if you don't have a relationship with the Jesus that went to that cross to purchase your freedom, then I wanna invite you to pray this prayer. You pray it in your heart. I'll pray it out loud, loud to lead you, but you make it your own prayer. You give your life to God. You ask for His forgiveness. And the Bible says, if you pray this prayer and you mean it, oh, this is good news. The old is gone and the new has come. If you want a brand new slate, the slate wiped clean and a fresh start with God today, then this is a prayer for you to pray. Let's all close our eyes. I'm gonna pray this out loud and you can pray it in your heart. 